right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 14 this morning, verses 26 through 31. Uh, as you know, we're continuing our study of Mark's Gospel, and this morning we'll be considering a text where Jesus tells his disciples, especially Peter, that they would all fall away from him. Now, our culture often tells us to be self-confident. Right? We're told things like, you can do it. Believe in yourself. You're strong. Right? The inspirational Facebook quotes that people like to, to post, and usually their lives aren't going too well. But they're, but they're posting the inspirational quotes anyway. Right? And, and, and listen, maybe there is a qualified, limited way that those slogans are true in certain aspects of life. Right? Believe in yourself. Right? Like you're, you're not a stupid person. The Lord has, has given you intellectual gifts. You can learn how to do this skill. Right? There's, there's maybe a qualified sense that we can say things like believe in yourself, you're strong, are, are true in certain aspects of life in a qualified way. But please hear me. They are utterly inappropriate and false with regard to Christianity and the Christian life. You're strong. Believe in yourself. Those things are inappropriate with regard to Christianity and living as a Christian. The Word of God often reminds us to not put our confidence in ourselves, but instead to rely upon the Lord. The Scriptures teach us in many places that we are weak and sinful and prone to wander from God. The Scriptures teach us that apart from God, we can do nothing at all. But on the other hand, by His grace alone, we can do what he calls us to do. We need only to submit to him in love and faith and obey his word. And he will supply us with strength that we need to be faithful. But nowhere in scripture are we taught that we are strong, sufficient, sound, or faithful in ourselves. And when I say in ourselves, I mean in our own strength and abilities. Scripture actually warns us in many places that when we trust in our own power and intellect and abilities that we should look out because then we are most liable to fall into sin. I think the text before us this morning serves as something of a warning to any Christian who thinks that he or she is strong. It's something of a wake-up call to those who would arrogantly trust in their own willpower or abilities <clears throat> to withstand temptation and remain faithful to the Lord Jesus. But even though there's a warning here in this text, this passage also contains a great message of hope and grace to disciples who fall and fail. So this morning, I, I hope to issue a warning about proud and arrogant self-confidence. Uh, but I also aim to encourage you by reminding you that Christ has grace for his disciples who are weak failures. In other words, he has grace for each one of us who trust in him. May God help us to see these things this morning. Now, with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, 
If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our most merciful God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this Sabbath day. And we thank you for the privilege of sitting under the ministry of your word. You have put your blessing to the reading, hearing, and preaching of your word. You have promised to use it to do wonderful things. And so we ask now that you would be pleased to do what you have promised and bless us. Grant us to to see ourselves rightly and grant us to see your grace for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, your son. By your spirit, God, work in us this morning as we humble ourselves before your word. Glorify yourself in us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. I'll start with some context. We get, we get that in verse 26. We read, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus and his disciples are on their way, in our passage, to the Mount of Olives. Passover has ended. Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper. The time has now come. The night has come. In just a few hours, our Lord would be betrayed into the hands of sinful men. His suffering, or his passion, is now upon him. In just a few hours, Jesus would be arrested and taken to a mockery of a trial. And he would be sentenced to death pending the agreement of the Roman official Pontius Pilate. At this point, Bible commentator Matthew Henry points out something worth mentioning. I thought this was interesting. At the first Passover, the Israelites were to stay inside, lest the destroying angel strike them and kill them. But now, at the final Passover, Jesus, the Passover lamb, goes out into the night in order to expose himself to destruction, that he might save sinners. And Jesus affirms as much in the next verse. On the way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus speaks to his disciples. John chapter 13 tells us that he had said something similar already in the upper room. And now he says it again, verse 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus here is is prophesying what will happen that night. And he's quoting from the Old Testament as proof. He's actually quoting from Zechariah chapter 13. uh, Chapter 13, verse 7. Now, not a lot of people uh, often read the, the minor prophets. You should. you should. That should be part of your Bible reading. But we're not very familiar with the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, by the way, minor doesn't mean unimportant. Minor means short books. Uh, the minor prophets. So let me read Zechariah 13, verses 7 through 9 now, so you can see a little clearer what Jesus is getting at. There we read, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand upon the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Now, That passage in Zechariah uh, makes me ask some questions that I cannot answer yet, uh, particularly with regard to verse 8. But this much is clear. Let me give you the big picture of what I just read to you from Zechariah. God's chosen shepherd would be struck. Right? uh, How how does he put it? Um, 
the, the man who stands next to me, right, or, or my, my fellow, right? So this is someone who, who actually has close association with the Lord, and you could infer from that passage that he is an equal to him. He's my fellow. He's my associate. This is the chosen shepherd of God. In the book of Zechariah, uh, the prophet talks about wicked shepherds, right, who are, who are not doing good for God's people that God is going to judge. And then he talks about a good shepherd, whom God has chosen. And here in Zechariah 13, God says that the good shepherd would be struck and that his sheep would be scattered. The final result of the striking of the shepherd is that a, a fountain that cleanses would be opened. You can read that in, in verse 1 of that chapter. A fountain that cleanses would be opened and the sheep would be regathered to God and they would have fellowship with the Lord. They'll be my people and I will be their God. So the big picture here from Zechariah 13, 7 through 9 is, is this. The result of the shepherd being struck is the sheep receiving salvation and fellowship with God. Now, now don't, don't worry. We're going to get to the you will all fall away part here in a minute. But first, I want you to see that Jesus says he will be struck. As he has done many, many times before, he is prophesying his coming death on a cross. More specifically... In Jesus' quotation or paraphrase of Zechariah 13, 7, he says, I will strike the shepherd. It is written, I will strike the shepherd. Who is speaking in Zechariah 13, 7? Later it says, the Lord of hosts. God is speaking. It is God who commands the sword to strike his shepherd. It's God who is behind this. Jesus is just making it even more explicitly clear in this short quotation. Now, let's be, let's be clear about this. Human agents will sinfully crucify Jesus, but God will be at work in it. God will be doing the most ultimate striking of the good shepherd. Have you considered this? God does the ultimate striking of Jesus. The sword of the divine justice of God will be laid upon Christ by God himself. And it will be done in order that atonement can be made for the sinful sheep. As Isaiah says in chapter 53, verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him, the Messiah, to grief. When his soul, that is the Messiah, soul stands for the whole person. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus would be struck by God at the cross. And in his suffering and death, he would make an offering for guilt. Not for himself. He had no sin. He was without sin and therefore without any guilt before God whatsoever. No, his offering would not be made for himself. His offering was made for others. It was made for sinners. It was made for us. Our sins were laid upon the shepherd. And the shepherd was struck in our place to satisfy the wrath of God. To satisfy the justice of God for our sins. And by his death, as Zechariah says, a fountain was opened up that sinners might wash by faith in Jesus and be made clean. By his death, the shepherd brought the wayward sheep into his fold and made them friends of the God that they had once been at enmity with. And this was all written of Christ before he came to earth. So he says, as it is written. This was the sovereign plan of Almighty God. 
in the midst of all of the suffering that was about to come upon Jesus, in just a few hours, God was at work making atonement for the sheep. The shepherd would be struck by God for us to take away our sins and the penalty due to us for them. I didn't want you to miss that. That's too important. That's too important. But that's not all that Jesus says. When he mentions his death, he almost, mentions, he almost always mentions his resurrection. Verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. The disciples didn't catch this. They forget. Funny thing, I'm walking away from a manuscript. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on this, he says, don't feel bad, pastor, whenever people don't remember what you said because the disciples didn't listen to Jesus either. But after I am raised up, they forgot that part. What I want you to see here for, for this morning, Jesus declares here that his atoning work will be successful. But after I am raised up, his death on behalf of others, on behalf of the many, on behalf of sinners, on behalf of those who believe on him, will do what he intends. It will save them. He will accomplish his mission for which he came into the world, to save his people from their sins, as the angel told Joseph. And so he must rise from the dead as the victorious Savior that he is. Death had no claim on him. The wages of sin is death, but he is sinless. He suffered and died not for himself, not for his sins, but for the sins of others. And so death would have to give him up. Death had to release him. I say to you again, Jesus' work on the cross was successful. He did not try to save his people. He saved them. And his resurrection from the dead is the proof. That's why in the same breath that he says, God's going to strike me, he also says, and after I am raised, he will be successful in his work. But notice again in verse 27 what will happen when Jesus is struck. And Jesus said to, him, said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered the disciples will all fall away when Jesus is struck. The sheep, his sheep, his disciples will scatter. When the time comes for his suffering to begin, when, when the time comes for him to be arrested by wicked men, the disciples will fall away. As, as Zechariah said, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep scatter. Hundreds of years beforehand, Zechariah prophesied that the apostles would abandon Jesus once his suffering began, when his arrest came. But, but what does Jesus mean? You will all fall away. F to fall away literally means uh, to stumble. Uh, the, the root word, I believe, it's, uh, I believe the word is scandalizomai here. The root word is scandal. Right? You stumble because you're ashamed. You stumble because you're scandalized. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 31, you will all fall away on account of me. What does that mean? You will stumble because you are ashamed of me. They would be afraid to be numbered with him, right? They would run away from him in fear because they were afraid to be associated with him when his suffering began. Now, let's be clear about something here, and I don't think I need to labor this point, but this is not a reference to them losing their salvation, right? You will all fall away as if you'll go from being justified to not being justified. That's simply not possible. Our Lord, praise God, is the good shepherd who does not lose sheep, Right? What Jesus is talking about here is a temporary falling away. He is not talking about a total and final apostasy like Judas committed. The, the falling away of the disciples will be out of fear, not out of hatred for Christ. 
their falling away will be born of weakness, not of total unbelief and rejection of Christ. A brief note here, there are different kinds of falling away. Again, look at Judas and look at the other disciples. There are different kinds of unfaithfulness. There is a premeditated rebellion against Christ that calls one's profession of faith into question. Right? There is an outright rejection of Jesus. And then there is a falling away for a time or an instance of unfaithfulness because of weakness and temptation. There's a difference. The first is most often done by false professors. The second is done by true believers when we sin. I say that to say this. For, for those of you who struggle with the assurance of salvation because you fall into sin, as we all do, but then you immediately question whether or not you're a Christian to begin with, please hear me now. There is a difference in sins. There are. Not all sin calls into question your profession of faith in Christ. Not all sin calls into question your profession of faith. I'm not telling you to be soft on sin, but I'm saying don't question whether or not you're a Christian just because you've fallen into sin. Consider the difference between Judas and the other apostles. There is a difference. But Jesus says that the disciples would not stand with him. They will be ashamed of him and afraid of suffering with him, and they will run away. When the, when the heat is turned up, they will forsake him. In that moment, they will not be strong, but they will fall away. Hear, hear that again. They will be ashamed of him, and when the heat is turned up, when the trial comes, they will run. They will succumb to the temptation to abandon him and flee. Brothers and sisters, Let's, let's think about ourselves here for a moment. How many times have each one of us done this? How many times have we done this? We have all, in some way or another, done this in the past week. I, I, I guarantee, or I nearly guarantee it. How many times have we done this throughout our lives as Christians when we consider the whole thing? Right? When the heat is on and when temptation comes, when pressure mounts, we have fallen away. All of us must confess this sin. If you don't, then you need to confess the sin of lying. All of us must confess this. And we must confess that though it is born out of weakness in us and not a hatred for Christ, it is still very much a sin. Christian, let me ask you some questions. Sincerely, I, I want you to think about this because I don't want you to stick your, your chest out and say, I'm not like the apostles here. Yes, you are. Let me ask you some questions. How many times have you been silent when you should have spoken up for or about Christ? You fell away. You were scandalized by him and you kept your mouth shut. How many times have you winked at sin in your life or the lives of others when you should have been grieved and hated it with Christ, but instead of standing with him against the sin in your own life or the lives of others, you've fallen away? How many times have you went with the flow instead of taking a stand with your Lord? How many times have you given yourself over to temptation to sin instead of withstanding it with him? All of these and many more examples are instances of us being scattered and falling away. We, we are all just as guilty as the apostles would be that night, just in different ways and in different situations. What I'm saying is all of us have been unfaithful to the Lord. Every one of us. Why don't you catch something else before we leave verse 27? They'll scatter. 
and Christ will be left alone. Jesus will be left all alone as he works redemption for sinners. He'll be by himself. He will not be helped by anyone. There will be no one by his side to help him. And I think that this is for a reason. Just as the high priest had to go alone into the Holy of Holies to offer blood on the Day of Atonement, so also Jesus, the great high priest, would have to go this alone. No one could help him. He must be by himself as he offers his blood on the altar of the cross on the true Day of Atonement. Brothers and sisters, there is only one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus, he would not be assisted by any. He will not share his glory with anyone. Contrary to what the papists say, he will not be co-redeemer or co-mediator with anyone. He will not share his glory with another, and so he must go alone. He must do this work alone. And he will do this work alone because the disciples will abandon him. When the moment of truth comes, they will sin and be ashamed of him and fall away. But what's kind of ironic about this whole thing is that they don't think they will. They don't think they will. Jesus says they will. He even quotes scripture that prophesies what's going to happen, but they don't believe him. Verses 29 through 31, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Peter didn't believe what Jesus said about their coming faithlessness. He says there's no way he's going to abandon Christ. And I hope you caught, Peter was not alone in this. He was the most vocal, as Peter usually is. But verse 31 tells us they all said the same thing. They all said what Peter was saying. We're not going to deny you. We're not going to do it. If we have to die first, we will die before we fall away from you. They were all joining in on this. Now, let's not be too harsh with the disciples here. I think sometimes we are, or at least maybe I am. Let's not be too harsh. I, I think they were sincere when they said this. I think they were sincere. That they, they shouldn't have talked back. They should have shut up. But they were sincere. What I mean is this. They loved him. They loved Jesus. And so they hated the thought that they would ever fall away from him. They hated the thought that they would ever be unfaithful. But this is the heart of someone who's been born again, by the way. They hate the thought that they would be unfaithful to Christ. They recoiled at the idea, and so they denied that it would happen. Hear me, we can and should commend their love for Jesus at this point. They're saying, that's not going to happen because we love you. We should commend that. Every true Christian hates the thought of faithlessness, and they were just expressing that. They were being foolish, yes, but they did love Christ, and that's commendable. But mixed with their love for Christ was a great amount of pride. And we see that in this, in this passage. And things are often like this in the Christian life. I was thinking about this this week. Our virtue is often mixed with sin. Is it not? I want to help this homeless person in the name of Christ. And also a little bit on the side, it just makes me feel like I'm a better person than people who don't help homeless people. Our virtue is always tinged with sin. Always. Our best efforts and good intentions and good works are often mixed with sin in some subtle way. And this is one reason why we so desperately need the mediatory work of Christ. 
We, we need him to take our attempts at obedience and make them presentable to God because our best works are always imperfect and tainted with sin in some way, just as the love of the disciples for Christ was tainted with pride. They denied that they would fall away that night, but the word of Christ stands. In verse 30, Jesus says that Peter would deny him three times before morning comes. And that word deny literally means disown. You will disown me three times. Peter, the most vocal opponent of Jesus' words in this passage, would actually do worse than all the rest would do. They would run away, but he would deny even knowing who Jesus is. If you, if you read the passage uh, just a few verses later about Peter's denying Christ, he says, I don't know him. He would do worse than the rest. And by the end, they would indeed all fall away. In verses 29 and 31, the disciples display a, a shockingly arrogant self-confidence. But Peter was the worst. Did you catch in verse 29? Even though they all fall away, I will not. And it kind of makes you chuckle a little bit because it, it just the, the sheer arrogance of it all. Right? They might be so weak as to commit this awful sin, but I'm not. Right? They might not love you as, enough to die with you, but I do. They, they might be uncommitted enough to commit this grievous sin, but not me. That's what Peter's saying here. And, and, and notice that from neither Peter nor the other disciples is any mention of grace, is there? No, no, no admission of weakness or, or need of help from Jesus. There's no plea for Christ's help. There's just a flat denial that it's going to happen. Right? Like, like they just simply don't believe that they'll fall away. It's as if they don't believe it is even a possibility for them to be unfaithful to Jesus. They just flatly deny it. It's not going to happen, Jesus. This is vain self-confidence. Vain self-confidence. They think, especially Peter, that they are simply strong enough to will themselves to remain faithful to Christ. That they show here that in this moment, they were trusting in themselves and their own power to remain faithful. I have no other thing to call it. It was pride that led them to say these things. Again, no recognition of weakness or dependence upon Christ for grace to withstand the trial that was about to come upon them. This makes us think of Proverbs 16, 18, doesn't it? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. They must have forgotten these words of Scripture because they had become proud and self-reliant. And where did that get them? Where did their self-reliance get them? Where did their proud boasting get them and their self-confidence and their supposedly strong wills? Where did that get them? In just a few hours, they would all abandon Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And just a while later after that, Peter would deny even knowing who Jesus is. Confidence in the flesh got them absolutely nothing. Pride in their own strength and abilities got them absolutely nowhere, and they fell hard, especially Peter. Now, there are some principles that we can glean from this that are worth our consideration this morning. 
the disciples give us what I would call a negative example. Don't do this. They give us a negative example and a warning at this point. Please hear me. I would never do that is a stupid thing for a Christian to say. Even a mature Christian. Even an apostle. I would never do that is a silly thing to say. In your flesh, and when I say that, I mean on your own, apart from God's grace, you don't know what you would do if the circumstances were just right and the temperature was turned up just so hot and the temptation was just so strong. You don't know what you'd do. If someone came to you and put a knife to your throat and told you, deny Christ or I will flay you alive, what do you do? What would you do? By the way, I do believe that this happened to Bartholomew. What would you do? Let's up the ante a little bit. Mom, Dad, if someone took your child and said, I will skin her alive in front of you if you don't stop talking about Christ, what do you do? If the state says, we won't take your freedom. We will take the freedom of your family if you continue to go to church and worship the Lord. What would you do? If your ideal specimen of the opposite sex absolutely threw himself or herself at you and you were alone and out of state, what would you do? If your employer said, you will endorse homosexuality or you will lose your job here, what would you do? If your dearest relative said, talk to me about Christ one more time and you will never see me again, what would you do? Now, we know the right answers to those questions. We do. We know what we should do. Right? And in our piety, and I mean genuine piety, we say, I know what I'm supposed to do. You know the right answer. But can you say that in yourself, you are strong enough to do what you ought? Do you have the strength in yourself to withstand such temptation or trial and remain faithful? I'll answer it for you. No, you don't. And respectfully, you are an arrogant fool if you think that you do. Now, how do I know that? Well, consider just for a moment how many times you have succumbed to lesser temptations and have been unfaithful under much, much less serious circumstances. You fell under something little. What makes you think you won't fall under something big? Rather, we should say this, by God's grace, I will never do that. If God helps me, and I, by faith, submit to his aid, I will never do that. May God have mercy on me if that day ever comes so that I can withstand the temptation and remain faithful. That's what you should say. By God's grace, I wouldn't do that. May God have mercy on me and help me. No Christian is above any sin. Let me say that again. No Christian is above any sin. Let me just go through some examples here. It's for you to chew on. You say, I would never deny being married. Right? I have a, a wife that I love. I would never deny being married. Look at Abraham. I, I would never kill anyone. Look at Moses. Look at King David. 
I would never commit adultery. Look at King David again. I would never abuse alcohol or drugs. Look at Noah. Look at Lot. I, 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 would, I would never offer my daughter up to wicked men. Look at Lot again. How about this one? I would never let my children do that. I would never be so foolish as to let my daughter dress that way or let my children, I would never in, let them indulge in sin under my watch. Look at the priest Eli in 1 Samuel, what he let his children do. This one comes to mind for me. I would never succumb to the pressure to distort biblical truth. Are you sure? Look at Peter in the book of Galatians. I would never deny Christ. Look at Peter again in the Garden of Gethsemane. No Christian is above any sin. We're just not. To believe that a Christian is inherently above any sin is to be something of a Pharisee. What do I mean? I mean you're self-righteous and you're trusting in your own strength to think that you are intrinsically above anything. To think that is to trust in yourself instead of entrusting yourself to the only one who can actually give you the strength to be faithful. The omnipotent God. And to trust in anything but him is foolishness. And we dare not do such a thing. Please hear me. Here's a warning for you this morning. If you trust yourself and think that you're above any sin, don't be surprised if the Lord allows you to fall into sin in order to humble you. Am I saying he'll make you sin? No. I'm saying he may withhold his grace and allow you to fall for a time. I've experienced this. I, I, I know many others have as well. Some of you are nodding your head. You know what I'm talking about. You start to get proud. and I don't know why other people can't just get it together like I have. And the Lord lets you fall into something. Why? To humble you. The Bible usually presents two options to us. You can humble yourself or you can be humbled. And again, look at Peter just a few hours after the text, or this incident in our text. He fell. Brothers and sisters, we are not strong in ourselves. We are above nothing. We are weak, and we are liable to fall into sin, even terrible sin. And that's why Scripture gives us warnings. Like 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Hear these words. The apostle says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands... Take heed lest he fall. Be on guard. Look to the Lord for divine aid. Don't trust yourself and believe that you're strong enough, that you're just going to white-knuckle temptation and withstand. Don't, and don't believe the lie either that you just let go and let God. That's not true either. That's, that's dumb. No, you must be vigilant against sin while relying upon the Lord to come to your aid that you might withstand temptation. I think it was Matthew Henry that said, we dare not pray, lead us not into temptation, and then wander there willingly ourselves. We must be vigilant even as we rely upon God. But hear me, take heed if you think you stand. If you do not, you are sure to fall. I, I hope that you're seeing the point here. Self-confidence is foolishness. We are utterly dependent upon the grace of God to remain faithful and withstand temptation to sin. If we are to say no to the flesh and say no to sin, we need divine aid. So then, what do we do? 
We must humble ourselves before God. We must admit our weakness to him, confess it to him, and we must commit ourselves to prayer, daily asking the Lord to sustain and uphold us or we will fall. It should be part of every Christian's morning prayer, in my personal opinion. I'm not making a law where there is no law. My personal opinion. God, help me to live like a Christian today because if you don't, I won't. That should be part of our prayers. We must daily ask God for strength that we might be faithful and resist the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have to depend upon him. And the beautiful thing is he promises help. Call upon me in the day of trouble, is what the, what the psalmist records. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will come to you, and you will glorify me. Or I will rescue you, and you will glorify me. God says, if you call out to me in the day of trouble, if you call out to me in the midst of temptation, I will help you. He promises to help. So we must ask him for help and rely upon his strength for the day of trouble. What I'm saying is be humble, Christian. Seek the Lord knowing that you are not strong, but he is almighty. A thought, and, and I wasn't alone in this, I was surprised to see J.C. Ryle said something similar. Not exactly, but similar. I'm sorry, Matthew Henry. What Peter and, and the disciples, and really any honest Christian, here's what they should have said. Jesus said, you'll all fall away. Here's what they probably should have said. We're not above doing that, Jesus. That should have been the first you will all fall away. We're not above that. We are sinful and weak, and we've proven that time and time again. So two things. One, Jesus, if this is a test, and you're telling us it's quite possible that we'll fall away, and we're misunderstanding you here, will you make us to stand? Will you help us by your grace so that we don't fall? And then second, Jesus, if this is an infallible certainty and we will definitely forsake you, will you forgive us if we repent? I think those would have, that would have been appropriate for them to say, you will fall away. Jesus, if it's a test, will you help us to withstand? And if it's a certainty, will you forgive us if we repent? Why? Because they needed to recognize, oh, we're not above that, Jesus. We, we, we will fall. Jesus' words here call for humility and dependence upon him, but sadly, that is not what happened. And so they fell that night as a result because they were proud. And sadly, we often do the same. And relying upon ourselves and being arrogant, we fall into sin and faithlessness. But there is hope. I've been looking forward to getting to this part. There is hope for failing disciples. What I'm about to tell you is something that every Christian glories in. It's, it's something that we all hold tightly to and rejoice in. It is our hope as we live the Christian life. It is precious to each one of us as we follow Jesus and fail every day at some point and in some way. It's in verse 28. There's something hope-giving in verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Do you see it? Jesus says, meet me in Galilee after I'm raised from the dead. If I could summarize verses 27 and 28 in my own words, Jesus says, you will all fall away. The scripture says so. I will die, but I will rise. And after I rise, I will go before you to Galilee. Meet me there. Meet me in Galilee. Why would he tell them to meet him in Galilee? Because he's not done with them. 
Do you see the grace of God here? You will all fall away. And after you fall away, meet me in Galilee because we're not finished yet. This is glorious. You will run away. You will fall away. You will be ashamed of me. You will sin and deny me. You will leave me alone. But I'm not done with you. Meet me in Galilee. The shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered, but the scattered sheep would be regathered by the good shepherd. What a promise. What grace. He wouldn't disown them. They might disown him for a, for a season, but he would not disown them. Consider, he's going to the cross to die for them. You think he's just going to let them go? No way. They are his sheep. Just because they scattered did not mean that they were no longer his sheep. They're just scattered sheep now. <laughs> they had been chosen to belong to him. From eternity past, they had been chosen. He purchased them with his blood, and nothing that they did was going to change that. So he says, meet me in Galilee. Please hear me. We may forsake him for a time. Even true disciples do that. Listen, I'm not making light of it. We shouldn't. It is sin. God hates it. We should recoil at the thought. We should pray that God would preserve us and keep us from falling. But it does happen. That's the reality. We fall. But the glory of it all is that Jesus will not forsake us because he will not forsake his people. It doesn't matter how hard you have fallen or what sin you have committed, Jesus always takes his wandering sheep back. They are restored by his grace. The fallen are restored. They need only to come back to him. He took back Peter. He took back the others. He will take you back when you fall. Please hear me. Something that's been very comforting to me in my 11 years as a Christian is that Jesus has more grace than I have sin. He has more grace than you have sin. How do I know that? I'm a finite sinner and I have a finite amount of sins that I can commit. He is the God of infinitude. His grace doesn't run out. He doesn't have a certain amount of forgiveness of sins that he can only give out so much and you've crossed the line and I have no more forgiveness to give you because I'm finite. No, he is the infinite God who has infinite grace and infinite mercy and to give more and more grace to you will not diminish the grace in him. He has more grace than you have sin. He died for weak, failing, fragile, fickle disciples. Praise God for this. Praise God for such mercy. You know, earlier I asked you to reflect on all the ways and times that you have fallen away from Christ. All the times that you've been ashamed of him. All the times that you have refused to stand with him and have given yourself over to temptation. Well, hear this. There's good news for sinners like us. He's not finished. He's not finished with us. And he never will be because he is the God of infinite grace for those who come to him. As we often sing, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Oh, don't, don't downplay your sin. If you downplay your sin, you downplay his glory. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more, though. Praise God. And something else I want you to consider with all of this, and this is, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing this out of J.C. Ryle's commentary, straight up. You should know that. You should, buy, by the way, buy J.C. Ryle's commentary on all the Gospels. It's excellent. Something to consider with all of this. Jesus knew what they would do before they did it. 
and he chose them to be his apostles anyway. (laughs) He chose them to be his anyway. He knew what they were going to do that night, and he invited them to his table anyway. Christian, take comfort. Your sin does not surprise him. He doesn't doesn't wink at it or approve of it. He doesn't downplay it. But know this, he's not shocked by it either. He chose you anyway. He died for you anyway. He knows what you are, and he loves you anyway. As J.C. Ryle said, he knew how sinful and corrupt and guilty you were before conversion, and he knew how weak and erring and wayward you would be after your conversion, and he chose you anyway. Ryle said this, Let us take comfort in the thought that the Lord Jesus does not cast off his believing people because of failures and imperfections. He knows what they are. He takes them as the husband takes the wife with all their blemishes and defects, and once joined to him by faith, he will never put them away. Amen. Amen. Be encouraged, Christian. You are weak and sinful, but he is a mighty Savior. You are fragile and fickle, but he is immovable and constant. You may fail, but he remains faithful to his covenant. A covenant that he has made with you in his blood. As we come near to the end of this sermon, I just have two things I want you to keep in mind. Christian, pray for humility. Pray for humility and pray for strength to persevere. You need to do those things. Humble yourself before God. Acknowledge to him daily, Lord, there's, I am not above any sin. I need you to hold me up. And the beautiful thing is he'll do it. Just one example of many promises I could show you in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What is that? Look to him. He'll help you. God is faithful. And so he will help you when you're tempted to sin. So look to him in prayer daily and know that he delights to give strength to the weak who seek him. But please hear me. If you are arrogant and think that you'll remain faithful on your own without his help, look out because you will fall. He will humble you. He will humble you, and it will most likely be painful. Please hear me, Christian. He will not abandon you, but he will chastise you as a father chastises a son, and he may teach you a painful lesson in humility. Humble yourself before the Lord and know that he will help. And second, when you fail, and you will, I'm not making, I can't stress that enough. I'm not making excuses for you, but read, read Romans 7. You're going to fail a lot. Rest in his grace. Rest in his grace. Christian, repent and come back to him every time. Every time you're made aware of your sin, repent and return to him. I remember one time I was struggling with a habitual sin and I sat down with my pastor at the time and I said, dude, what do I do? And he said, look to Christ again. Get up, brush your, brush your knees of your pants off and keep following Christ. What was he telling me? Don't stop. Why? Because he has grace for you. Keep fighting the sin. Yes, you failed. 
I failed again today. Yes, you did. Look to the crucified, dead, and risen Christ again. Get up and keep following him. Rest in his grace and continue. And you can do so knowing that he will never grow tired of you. And he will never forsake you. Why? Because he bought you with his blood and he does not do returns on his purchases. You're his. He has grace for you. So keep looking to him for grace and forgiveness. Please hear me. If you've, if you've realized you're, you're more distant from Christ than you were because of some sin in your life, know this. Come back to him. His, his, his forgiveness is immediate. Restoration of fellowship is immediate. And I promise you this. You will hold yourself guilty longer than he will hold you guilty. And you will condemn yourself longer than he will condemn you. He will forgive. It is his delight to forgive sinners. Come back to him. Every time you fail, just come back to him. And he will restore you every time. And he will not grow tired of you because he is the patient God. All know that. All please know that. My mom used to ask me sometimes, is there a line where, where he'll just stop forgiving me because I've committed this same sin so many times? No. You want to know why? Because you can't change him. He doesn't change. He's patient. He's long-suffering. You can't change him. You can't bring about any change in him. He's the patient God who is most patient with his sheep. He's not finished with you, Christian, and he never will be. So may God grant that we would all follow Jesus in humility, watchfulness, repentance, and faith in his unfailing, unwavering love for weak disciples. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you. We thank you that Jesus is never finished with his disciples. We thank you that his blood is enough to take away all of our sin. We thank you for the mercy found in him. God, would you help us to humble ourselves before you and to seek you daily that we might withstand temptation to sin and remain faithful. And we know that you will do it because you delight to help your little ones. So help us, God. And lead us to Christ each time we fail. Have mercy on us, we pray in his name. Amen.